Hi, I'm Tom Beattie, and this is Igcast, a new podcast series looking into the history of identities, how they manifest themselves today, and what the future holds for these communities. You may have already noticed, I'm a Liverpoolian. I was born in Liverpool in 1997 and grew up in the city before leaving for university in 2015. In this episode, I'll be looking at something that has been gathering pace in my own lifetime in my hometown. Liverpool is, of course, a a port city with a rich maritime history of migration and trade. Between 1700 and 1900, it is estimated that around a third of all world trade passed through Liverpool's docks. With that trade came mass immigration to the city, which has resulted in long-standing international communities having been established in the city far earlier than in other parts of the UK. For example, the oldest Chinese community in Europe can be found in the city. Perhaps the best example, however, of a way of articulating the city's heritage is through its accent, which is markedly different than Lancashire, which the city borders within a 10-mile radius. According to research, the accent itself is likely a mixture of Lancashire, Irish, Welsh and a host of other accents that in many ways tells the tale of what makes the city such a unique find. Liverpool, as famous city councillor Bessie Braddock once quipped, faces out to the world and has its back turned on England. In recent times this feeling has gathered a lot of traction with many of the city's inhabitants identifying as Scouse as opposed to English. The roots of this may well lie in the city's recent history despite its status as a port city which has experienced mass immigration for the best part of the past 300 years. Liverpool began the 20th century as the so-called second city of the British Empire with a peak population of 800,000. However, as great as the rise undoubtedly was, the city suffered a dramatic and infamous fall from fortunes, which perhaps had its roots in the fallout from the Second World War, the decrease in the port's importance to Britain's fortunes as the empire went into terminal decline, and increased trade with Europe, which meant that the city was simply on the wrong side of Britain to benefit from the new trading links with the continent. By the late 1970s, Liverpool was on the cusp of its nadir as a city. The election of Margaret Thatcher to government in 1978 would put the city on a collision path that would harm the city's reputation nationally in a decade that goes down as probably the city's darkest. It would be a decade that would shape Liverpool's future, consolidate its identity, but also would have devastating consequences for the people of the city. In the 1980s, Liverpool would experience riots in Toxteth in 1981, which meant that the city was considered for an unprecedented managed decline programme by government ministers. By 1983, the Trotskyist militant group, led by Deputy Council Leader Derek Hatton, would gain control of the city's council, vowing to set a so-called illegal budget to help alleviate Liverpool's socio-economic woes. This would put Liverpool on a political warpath with the establishment. The Hillsborough tragedy would also occur in a decade of sorrow for the city. In 1989, 96 Liverpool fans were killed on the terraces at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield in an FA Cup semi-final against Nottingham Forest. The reaction to the tragedy in the national press stands on its own as a tragedy in itself. Liverpool fans were accused of stealing and urinating on their fellow supporters in the Sun newspaper, in one of the most appalling falsehoods to ever adorn the front of a British newspaper, a government cover-up would be revealed 20 years later, which revealed official police documents were doctored to place the blame on the fans that day. 31 years later, the fight for justice still goes on, until this day, a citywide boycott of the Sun newspaper 
still exists. Some people would suggest that this decade represents the beginning of the feelings of isolation for the rest of England, and the established order of Britain more generally. To find out more about this era, I spoke to the athletic Simon Hughes, who recently wrote a book chronicling this period in the city's history called There She Goes. The book uh, spans the period 79 to 93, which starts with, with Thatcher coming to power and finishes with the, the murder of James Bulger. And I think people sort of, in the head, sort of think of the 80s finishing in 1989, but mm. having grown up in sort of the post-Thatcher period, you know, her measures and the things that happened under her watch still define Liverpool, even now. You know, as, as I think there's a lot of things that happened in this period which, which certainly cemented views from within about how Liverpool felt about itself and then equally enforced or reinforced negative perceptions of the city on the outside. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the, the defining moments really um, in that in this period where Liverpool becomes another place separate from Britain is when in the post-Heisel weeks when Thatcher describes Liverpool as a particularly violent part of the country. I think at that point, you know, maybe there have been things that had separated Liverpool from inside Liverpool. The collective became very uh, pronounced at that point. Um, I must say though, I think that over the last um, 10 years, there's been a sort of a rediscovery of that sort of Scouts Not English thing because um, for, for a number of reasons, you know, there's, there's been people, there's a few people have said to me, like sort of, you know, or implied maybe that I'm not the ideal person to write about this period because I didn't live through it, but I sort of feel like I lived through the consequences of it, which people tend mm. not to talk about. So there's almost like this possessiveness about the 1980s in Liverpool amongst particularly mm. working men who like sort of like to either glorify or condemn it as the worst periods ever. Whereas I, I, I felt growing up, you know, that we, my generation of people sort of lived with the consequences of it. Um, and this has given birth to this new sense, this sort of rediscovered sense of identity over the last 10 years. So, I mean, I've written about this before, not necessarily in the book, but about how, you know, first of all, you've got 2008, the capital culture year, where there's this rediscovery of Scouse pride, you know, I guess amongst younger people, it seemed like there were more possibilities in that time. And then 2009, you've got the 20th anniversary of Hillsborough, where suddenly, you know, you've got the... I was there at Anfield that day when Andy Burnham vowed to sort of do something about this injustice. Um, and then suddenly younger people are allowed to talk about it a little bit more, about mm. why, why, what's been got Like, I always felt with Hillsborough, like, it was always... I felt this immense sadness, but it was almost somebody else's... Um, Grief, and I didn't want to trample upon it, but yeah. suddenly it made me realise that a lot of the prejudices based around supposed things that had happened to Hills that weren't true had impacted on a lot of young people's lives in this city as well. Mm. So that happens, then you've got uh, 2011, um, 2011, the, the Jeffrey Howe memo, which confirms a lot of people's suspicions about what the Tories are doing, the mind decline. Yeah. And then uh, you've then got, you know, the uh, Hillsborough Independent Panel Report and the inquest and all these things are happening again. So a lot of younger people, and I still classify myself in that group, even though I'm 36, um, are suddenly starting to talk about all these, all these events and with the rise of social media it becomes 
you know, you become acutely aware of how people on the outside of Liverpool think about yeah, the city. So right, yeah. I think it's really accelerated in a way that maybe people haven't realised. Actually, mm. I think the prize in young people um, in Liverpool is, is, is greater than it's ever been. I think now, you know, Liverpool more than ever really has a, has a fiercer sense of identity than it, than it ever has. For Simon... The impact of the militant tendency on public perceptions of Liverpool cannot be underestimated. Militant were a Trotskyist wing of the Labour Party that gained control of Liverpool City Council in 1983. They would become the enemies of the Thatcher regime, with Liverpool becoming outsiders looking in as the city refused to comply with monetarism. I think that sort of came a, a little bit earlier in the decades. I think you look around militants and... I mean, it's, I, I suppose... Maybe I haven't stressed it quite enough in the book that Millicent did exist in other cities, mm. but Millicent was given Millicent was given more of a platform because of the methods of Thatcher and mm. how uh, how failing Liverpool was as, as a city. Mm-hmm. So Millicent actually gets forgotten in Liverpool. Uh, so Millicent. Uh, work in Liverpool, it gets forgotten that they did actually have quite a bit of a, jo- a bit of success over a short period of time uh, with, with various things like Liverpool's longest longest um, standing main issue really was the housing stock. You know, the mm. places weren't fit for purpose, and that no, yeah, that's a deeper deeper story. But it's, I suppose the point that I'm making is Millicent was shouting about Liverpool's problems, and a lot of other cities had the same similar problems as Liverpool. Although I think Liverpool's fall have been more dramatic. Mm. Other places maybe not quite dra- dra- as dramatic and hadn't those those issues hadn't quite shown reveal themselves quite yeah. as much as they had in Liverpool. But nevertheless, there were people within those cities who felt strong enough to, you know, to have a militant presence. But ultimately when it came to it, a lot of councils weren't provi- weren't willing or weren't willing to become a militant council. So Militant couldn't ever, it was only ever really a short term solution, to be honest. It was never going to, unless it spread mm. and other people backed it up, it was never going to succeed in a medium to long term. So when that didn't happen, I think Liverpool was cut loose as being the only really properly established militant council. And, you know, obviously we're, we're, we're really loud about documenting uh, the role of Thatcher and being opposed to Thatcher. So I think that's the point really where early in the decades where it sort of is, is cut adrift from the rest of the country politically yeah. because no one no one else was willing to follow. Perhaps the biggest moment in the shift in feeling in Liverpool towards the political establishment will come as a result of Hillsborough, as Simon points out. Obviously I've got to be careful what say about Hillsborough because there's still yeah. there's still the trials going yeah. on which which you know is thirty now thirty one years on. Mm-hmm. Which again, I mean what I can say is that is an unresolved issue. Mm-hmm. That happens anywhere in the world. Yeah. It's going to affect the way people think about themselves and about their standing in society. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's the sort of thing that you'd expect to hear in like a cover-up in thing that you'd see in the Soviet Union. You know, yeah. a, potentially, you know, something that hasn't been resolved over a long period of time, which is which is appalling, really. And yeah. I don't, I still don't think that people on the outside of the city realise just how hurtful what yeah. happened there is to, to Liverpool. I think and. It's um, it's as you said. You know, you're born in '97. I think if you're from Liverpool and you've certainly 
over the last 10 years been watching the news and been listening and talking to mm-hmm. people you can't afford, can't afford to be affected by it because it affects people on a daily basis if you go to another city mm-hmm. and you open your mouth you're going to say something about where you're from and that you know these negative impressions of Liverpool which just updated stereotypes which are, which aren't true you know you go to you know it carries itself through football grounds and football matches the way you know maybe some people say well it's just in jest but a lot of the, the views on employment and stuff mm. like that are just so outdated but have stuck and stood the test of time. Yeah. So A lot of the feelings surrounding isolation from England came from the stereotypes that developed towards the city during this period, something Liverpudlians grew to detest. There's two things really, I mean, if you, if you troll back to the 1960s, you know, when Liverpool was, I guess, at its, I don't want to say peak, but at its most dominant culturally, you know, mm. sense of the world when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. Or some people would say, well, it wasn't sense of the world, you know, what about Motown or whatever, you know, I, I get that, you know, football, both football teams doing well. Mm-hmm. You know, that, 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 Liverpool people have always tended to sort of sing about its its own achievements, you know, people, people in Liverpool are proud of the place. But I think that inspired a lot of jealousy. So, you know the comedians, the great great comedians from Liverpool, which, uh, you know, sort of, in the long term, that that that, you know, became a, a thing where, you know, if you stand up to somebody who's chatting shite about Liverpool, oh, where's your famous Scouse humour? It's like a, you know, a suppressant. Yeah. It's like, well, I never said that I'm funny. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's just a thing that you know, a reputation thing, isn't it? But I think, um, I think you know now, you know. Liverpool in the 1980s because it was, was always in the news and because it was you know in the news or dramatised mm. everything did seem even more dramatic than reality so the yeah. upsides yeah um, yeah so I think Liverpool sort of took the place of you know you've got to remember in the late I think I've written this in the book that in the late 1980s sort of there's a more politically correct humour coming into the country whereby you've got I suppose more left wing, left wing sorts of comics. Yeah, Ben Elton's so, yeah, and all them sorts yeah. of people. So obviously the old Irish jokes, which formed part of the stigmatism of Liverpool in the first rung of stigmatism, mm. you know, and I guess yeah, Asian jokes were, were were sort of outlawed to a degree. So mm-hmm. Liverpool filled that gap, filled the gap a little bit, yeah. and I think now you know you you know Liverpool people. I wouldn't at that time you know sort of when the obviously the city was losing its population dramatically and Liverpool people they, they are, I've written this in the book as well you know Norman Tebbit had said you know get on your bike this on your bike theory you've got to go on find work but that's what Liverpool people did mm. you know, they actually passed the Tebbit test you know like, despite all the bone idols actually left the city to go find work mm. in mass numbers mm-hmm. but instead they were found they found the sort of hostility that I guess that Poles and Romanians find now yeah so you know it's history sort of repeating itself again mm. um, yeah I mean I, I think that I, I, I still feel now you know it doesn't take very long if you're a new company outside the city for somebody to have an opinion about Liverpool, Liverpool and where yeah. you're from and who you are and it's not necessarily very often a positive one the impact of the boycott of the Sun newspaper within Liverpool is now well documented. For Simon, the boycott represented a massive shift in the relationship between Liverpool politically and the rest of the country. 
It would lead to the development of Liverpool having an otherness, something its inhabitants are proud of, where the city began to act outside the political parameters of Britain. I think it's had a massive impact. I think it's fair enough to say that the Sun newspaper can still win elections. Mm. Certainly the Daily Mail, you know, the Daily Mail and the Sun, unfortunately, remain um, two of the biggest social and cultural influences in this country. Mm. And, you know, before before Hills with the Sun was well read in Liverpool. Mm. Yeah. So you could see that mm. as a cut off point. Uh, Liverpool decided to rid itself of the paper. I mean, it's one of the most incredible. I mean, I know a lot of people put hard work into to getting that boycott off the ground and it worked hard, but now it's, you'll know, it's passed from generation to generation without any amount of work. I mean, I, not reading the sun for me growing up and not voting Tory came even before Liverpool, supporting Liverpool for all. Like, I just knew, even in the early, early 90s, I was like, you don't even touch that newspaper and you don't you never go Tory. I think this sense of otherness about Liverpool, you know, it ties into what you said there about um, about holding people to account. I think there's a real there is a certain lawlessness about the way people think they, they, they are, I remember in the book Pete Pete Wiley said to me, you know, that in other cities certain acts would be seen as self destructive. Yeah. Something along these lines, but in Liverpool the scene is heroic, you know, and yeah. I think in Liverpool, I think because the city, the wealth, the, the, the relative wealth of which the city was built upon, um, it was only concentrated in a very small section of society. The idea yeah. of great Liverpool, you know, the wealth of Liverpool, there was massive poverty that existed in Liverpool. Mm. Now, Liverpool as a city never had the, uh, the structure of other cities in, in the country, so the working structure, so cause casualisation. Mm-hmm was that was the you know the methods of work so people wouldn't know whether they were working from day to day so yeah. that first of all sets off a sense of well i've got no loyalty to my employer mm-hmm. for a start mm-hmm. because you don't know whether you're going to be working so if they'd have had shift work maybe people would have been a bit more yeah, the point, yeah. and then not only that um you know there's it sets off this idea of i guess guess of criminality you know well if you're not going to be where if you don't know what are you meant to do you're meant to just sit on your hands and just accept that <laughs> or you're meant to try and find an alternative way of putting bread on the table yeah it's a fight for survival you know so yeah so that, i think that sort of shit that really sets liverpool apart from other cities maybe mm. you know before the period that i mean i've documented that in the book a little bit yeah but um that there's a certain level of i guess rebelliousness that exists in liverpool of course, the one thing that I did explore in the book is the the, the big dividing feature in Liverpool, which I think explains why by the 1970s, why there was greater unity on the docks, which was causing more problems for Liverpool in terms of the people who wanted to make money out of the dock areas, was sectarianism yeah. had existed in Liverpool up until the post-war periods where suddenly going back to the housing stuff, because the housing stock was obviously, you know, in, in a lot of cases, the slums were crushed and cleared. Yeah. Suddenly people who were once not living together, you know, Catholics and Protestants, were living together. And they realised, actually, we've got more in common, more in common. Than, we, yeah. than, we, than we actually appreciate. And that's when intermarrying begins and that, that creates problems then for the docks because there's greater unity amongst the, you know, yeah. The, yeah. the dock workers and people. So all these things contribute towards it. But I do, I do think... 
I think that the 80s and into the 90s is a defining period and a crossover point, but you could, you could work it back through the, the 19th and 20th centuries, I think. According to Simon, what developed in the 1980s was a culture of holding people to account. In Liverpool today, there is a distrust of the establishment that is steeped in the culture of the city, as Simon points out, and this probably has its roots going back hundreds of years to the casualised labour on the docks. More of an anti-establishment city mm. than anything else. I mean, it go, I think that just genuinely does go back to the fact if you really trace it back to the fact that the, the dock workers didn't have the, the, the docks which made people come here which increased the city's population the people who worked there didn't have the commitment to the establishments that other cities had the commitment you know like Manchester was may have gave birth to you know Engels and Palmar you know yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but ultimately, that that sort of workforce was contained by by the pattern of work. Mm -hmm. So I think it's the pattern of work, I guess, that maybe is the starting point or a nerve by that, and don't like it. Uh, yeah, you know, that contributes towards this idea that we think that we're better than everywhere else. When the reality is, I think to some degree, I think we think we're better than other people think we are. But I don't necessarily think we think we're better than them all the time. I think yeah. that that's probably that's the way it is. Mm. Now, that manifests itself in 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 a show of expression sometimes. Mm. And, and even inside Liverpool, this is not to say everybody in Liverpool feels the same way about it because I think there is a range of opinions in Liverpool, you know, about yeah. the way. And, and, and some people don't like sort of the the, the celebratory mood of it of the city. Sometimes you know it's too premature, but. I, um, my viewpoint is, you know, life's just too short to sort of wait for the next moment of achievement. You've got to enjoy the good times when they come because the city knows, you know, the, uh, the challenge and the struggle is never that far away. All of these factors have led Simon, like so many individuals in the city, towards feeling no affiliation towards England. In short, he is Scouse, not English. Yeah, uh, well, I think it all, it all contributes towards this point, doesn't it? I mean, I guess... A lot of people, again, I don't want to bring it always back to football, but I think football is always a big driver of the way people feel about most things, both in Liverpool and outside. So mm -hmm. I remember, I remember, for example, in 1990, one of my earliest memories of watching football was watching the 1990 World Cup. Yeah. I remember it vividly, it still sort of conjures up amazing colour mm. for me. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, hope England's win. And that probably feeling lasted, I'd say really until 98, 2000s, you know, where I was like, you know, I'd want, I'd want England to win. Yeah. I think it does change things or reignite, again, accelerate the sense amongst younger people is all the things that you've spoken about. People are, don't necessarily know all the details about why they feel the way they do, but they've certainly in the last 10 years, particularly with um, the return of the Tories, the government, you know, and 10 years of austerity. So that politicises a lot of people, mm. you know, people start conversations, it's easier, battle lines, particularly with the rise of social media, are, are easily drawn now, aren't they, in yeah. terms of I am this and you are that, yeah. which hasn't helped in a lot of ways, but um, I certainly now feel, on a personal <laughs> level, 
absolutely zero attachments to the rest of England. As you say, I don't. I, there are certain things we might have in common. You know, people talk about the northeast and the way you know Liverpool, Newcastle, the similarities. But you know, the northeast, there's great differences as well. I mean, again, bring it back to football. I just it used to make me really angry. And I know people in Newcastle have done really hard, worked really hard. Newcastle supporters and more elder statesmen to, to cut this out of the Tadish chanting, but singing about poverty in Liverpool. It was like Newcastle and Durham and, you know, Wearside suffered dreadfully under the Tories. We yeah. should be uniting over this issue. Mm. Unfortunately, it's for some reason football is allowing this, you know, this this myth to, to, to perpetuate and and there isn't as much unity I, I would like to think that eventually people will realise what we're saying is actually accurate mm. um, but they don't seem to so yeah I, I think that there's all sorts of reasons why people feel the way they do they take it back centuries but I, I particularly feel that younger people definitely younger people anyway um, in this sort of who are more socially I think young people tend to be more socially conscious than conscious than, than maybe previous generations yeah I, I do think they are maybe you know people use it as, as a, you know snowflake generation well I, I actually think people are just a bit might actually want to be a bit kinder the unfortunate the unfortunate reality is people who don't like that kindness and see it as a threat are willing to push harder against it than than maybe maybe younger kinds of people yeah. realise mm. you know, which is making it harder for mm. that that feeling Simon feels that younger people from outside the city are beginning to understand why Liverpoolians feel so strongly around this issue I must say as well younger people from outside the city generally I think have more sympathy with Liverpool's position than certainly older people from outside the city particularly people who've, from outside the city who come to live here it gets I, I, I think that ultimately Liverpool is an immigrant city and it's a place where people have always come to live so I always welcome people wherever they're from and a lot of people who young people who come to Liverpool as students and stays here get just as angry as I do yeah. about the way people talk about Liverpool now mm. totally and that's because being Liverpool I, without sounding too much I don't think it's um, it doesn't Liverpool isn't about where you're from it's about where your mind is at I think and yeah. a lot of people, younger people, are realising, you know, Liverpool potentially could be a major threat to the to the established way of thinking. I think, and I think, you know, the, the established way, or the, uh, I, I guess, people might say it's a re-establishment. You know, with mm. the, you know, it's a much more, even more right-wing way of thinking. The way we've gone politically, mm. um, I think Liverpool could be a threat because. I actually think people are led by common sense and fairness, which aren't two bad things to have. But I think the biggest thing about Liverpool is, which is weird, and it manifested itself again last night when Liverpool played Shrewsbury last night, who are League One team, yeah. and let Liverpool somehow manage to find itself in the position of being the underdog, despite the club being top of the Premier League with a record points total. How did that happen? Well, you know, obviously, I won't bore everybody with the story you listen to, but. Liverpool always shoots that sort of position despite it being a sort of a, a dominant cultural sense. Yeah. It always manages to engineer itself as being the plucky sort of fighter. I, I think one of the reasons why, another thing I must say, I think Liverpool's never had any 
any sort of main politician, um, certainly from a working class background, in gov- you know, in a high position in government yeah. in Britain, which yeah. again contributes towards that. I think there might be a reason why, because we're not prepared to make compromise in a way that other people might let things slip a little yeah. bit, as you said before. Possibly. We won't. We don't like being disingenuous. Like we, we, we find it hard to sort of if we say something, it means something that has value. It's yeah. not just empty, empty words. So, yeah, there's all these things which I think just contribute towards that, that, that sort of, that sort of feel. I think there is like sort of a, a little bit of a generational split about it as well. Because I yeah. know, I know like people who maybe were experienced in the 1980s are a bit taken aback by the, the depth of feeling at the moment. So it's like it was never like that then. Mm. Well, that, that's because we've lived with the consequences of yeah. what happened in that decade. That was Simon Hughes of The Athletic. It's clear that the historic roots of this debate can be traced back even further than the 1980s. Despite the consolidation of these beliefs that came out of that era. To find out a bit more about where Liverpool finds itself today and where this debate may be heading next, I had a chat with John Gibbons of the Anfield Rap. In 2016, Liverpool rejected Brexit in the EU referendum, with 58% of voters opting to remain. The city has a lot to thank the EU for. The triumphant year as European capital of culture in 2008 saw the city experience a true renaissance to re-establish itself as one of Europe's true epicenters of culture. With funding granted to the city to deliver its year in the spotlight, a new arena, multi-billion pound city centre revamp and a new airport would all arrive. In truth however, the city has always been outward looking and as John Gibbons describes, the result comes as little surprise. I think Liverpool as a city has just always felt a bit out of step with, with the rest of the country mm-hmm. and I think the political stuff kind of heightens that but I think I think Liverpool looked, the United Kingdom is an island and islands often and usually have a bit of an island mentality, you know we're quite insular, we're quite inward looking, mm-hmm. are quite you know in a bubble a little bit whereas I think Liverpool has always been a city that's looked out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think partly because it's it's a port city and, and you know influences in the city have come from you know I would say further afield mm-hmm. so there's obviously the big Irish influence and, and, and so many Irish people who, who are living there but I think mm-hmm. also you know it was a city that looked out to America mm-hmm. it was a city that you know people weren't afraid to get on a boat and go and see things and come back and share what they'd seen and I think mm-hmm that sort of changes the mentality so I think it's always just had a bit of a different outlook and a different kind of way of thinking and yeah different attitude really and that's mm-hmm. fine in a way like you know places can be different mm-hmm. the, the way the way it sort of flares up is that when obviously you know politics don't help so obviously mm-hmm. you know there's there's been some big elections recently and Liverpool yeah. have been on the other side of of all of them. Mm-hmm. And so and so that's when the feeling comes of isolationism. Yeah, a bit of isolation, yeah. yeah, a bit of kind of, you know, concern, you know, a bit mm-hmm. of kind of frustration. That's when it that's when it's kind of different feelings, you know, come up really. It's yeah. not like, you know, you, it's it's easy enough to think, oh we're different, but it's fine, do you know what I mean? Whereas, you know, when when you know, Liverpool's voting 
to remain yeah. in the EU, but with the rest of the country, what wants to wants to sort of close in, if you yeah. like. And, and Liverpool, as I say, is a place has always looked out, whereas the rest of the country seems to want to put, you know, a wall around it. It's, mm. it, 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 is, it is strange. In December of 2019, the general election delivered a landslide victory for the Conservative Party, led by Boris Johnson. For the first time in a generation, seats in Labour heartlands, including its famous Red Wall, were lost to the Tories. However, Liverpool would reject Johnson's party out of hand. In fact, the top five majorities in the country were to be found in Merseyside. As John points out, clearly the city is currently at odds with the country that surrounds it. You know, with the recent general election as well, yeah. that when, you know, a swing, big swing to the Conservatives, but mm -hmm. Liverpool remained kind of yeah exactly and then you look at the maps and you know the, you know the, it's not the only place that's still labor yeah. obviously but you know it's you know you look at the, the results here and you know it's it's it is like a different world not never mind a different yeah. country and so so i think that when when stuff like that happens it sort of reinforces this difference a bit more and that's when you start to you know feel not just sort of different but mm. also kind of you know kind of I don't know like there's kind of ten, more, a bit more tension to it it's strange because Liverpool you wouldn't call it a you know this huge multicultural kind of melting pot really if you look mm -hmm. at the census you know it's predominantly white city mm -hmm. you know there's areas that have you know more immigration there's areas that have more diversity than kind of Liverpool mm -hmm. um, but for whatever reason I think maybe because the, the communities that are here are a bit more entrenched if that's the right word or mm -hmm. you know a long term you know liverpool's got the the oldest chinese community in europe and you know obviously the the, the, the afro-caribbean community is kind of you know long-standing and stuff like that as mm -hmm. well and so i think it just feels that that we've lived with people who look different for longer mm -hmm. and so it's 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 although you know it might not be as pronounced for outside as when you come yeah for us it just kind of feels like a bit more normal and that's not to say that there aren't problems with racism in Liverpool because there mm. obviously are but it you know this kind of you know low level accepted racism that seems to happen within English society at the moment mm. you know both in the media and our politics isn't tolerated here yeah so there obviously are racists but this kind of idea that a certain level of racism is acceptable isn't in Liverpool yeah. and, and hopefully never will be. For John, however, a conversation still needs to be had surrounding exceptionalism, or in other words, the belief that Liverpool is better than elsewhere, as this will only lead to isolation. I think that's a good way to describe it, and there's there's two things you can do. When you're isolated, you can go further within yourself, mm -hmm. or you can open yourself up. Mm -hmm. And I think Liverpool, as much as possible, has to do the latter, because I think if we you know, if we just decide that Liverpool's its own empire, we're not going to sort of bother with anyone else, then, mm. you know, we'll struggle economically, we'll struggle socially, and, and you know, to be perfectly frank, conservative governments will have just decide they don't have to bother with the city, yeah. and, then, and, then, and then we'll sort of get left behind, really. Mm -hmm. So you need to find a way for to reach out, you need to find a way to win arguments, mm. and you need to find a way that, you know, you, you don't have to necessarily agree with everyone all the time but or you don't have to kind of you know pander to anyone else but mm. what you can do is encourage that why Liverpool's values should be the rest of the country's values <laughs> and not the other way around mm -hmm. do you know what I mean and so mm. and so 
you know, win the arguments on, on helping the most vulnerable in society, win the arguments on, you know, the, the positives of community rather than kind of this idea of individualism mm-hmm. and win the idea of actually, you know, looking after each other and looking after your mm-hmm. workers and looking after the sick and elderly are, are positive things for society rather than, you know, this kind of mistrust and this idea of, well, you know, you just sort of look after yourself and your own family and, and, and kind of screw everything else. And so I think, I think, you know, it is a good point what you make. And I think Liverpool, although it, it feels difficult sometimes and although we feel different and, and kind of on our own, I think as much as possible still needs to reach out mm-hmm. to the rest of the country because Otherwise, you're only going to sort of damage yourself and you're only going to increase this idea of, you know, scouts with chips on the shoulder and, and, mm-hmm. and you, know, you know, don't worry about all them, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, 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 you know, and then, and then you struggle in terms of investment, you struggle in terms of, you know, everything that kind of comes from that. So mm-hmm. you do need to kind of be careful and, and be open, even if you are kind of, you know, <laughs> frustrated. So that was John Gibbons. That concludes episode one of IGCAST. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and have learned some of the history of Scouse on English, as well as where the debate may be heading next. I've been Tom Beatty, and keep your eyes peeled for the next episode and give us a follow on Twitter at IGCAST Pod. See you later.